Merry Christmas, Grace Chapel. It is so good to see you. What a great time to come back together. Christmas Sunday. I trust you're well. I hope that you're well physically, um, emotionally, and definitely that you're well spiritually. Surveys, Gallup poll this last week said, this is the worst year for people in two decades. Surprise. I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of this year. I'm just saying I don't think we needed a survey uh, to tell us that this is one of the worst years in the last 20 years. But we're here together to know God more. And through that knowledge of Him from His Word, we're going to gain wisdom. We're going to gain some understanding about our times this morning. And we're going to gain endurance then to live out for Him this week. Amen? Amen. Let us pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, you alone are worthy of our worship, of our praise. And Lord, you've, you've made your word available to us each and every moment of every day to go to, to turn to, to memorize, to, to eat up, to fill up on. And, and Lord, we, we desperately need you and uh, we thank you that you are ever present and ever near to your children. And we, your children, beseech you. We go to your word now. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Christmas story. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Is that the beginning you were thinking of uh, when you thought about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a genealogy? The genealogy of Jesus as found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, it's probably a very unusual way to start the good news. Um, you get this big, long list of names. Do you know all these people? Can you pronounce all of these people's names? Uh, some of them are really hard to pronounce, and I'm not even going to try, I mean... And for some people, um, probably most people who read this genealogy, they have no idea who these people are. Some of them, a little familiar, most, no idea. And I'm absolutely, absolutely sure that at this time of the year, as many people get close to the end of a year, the beginning of a new year, they make what? New Year's resolutions. You may be thinking about yours right now. And some are, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day, and I am, my New Year's resolution is to read through the entire New Testament, and I'm going to start with the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, and they start reading Matthew chapter 1 and through the first 17 verses. And they're probably not taking much time or much concentration to read through a list of mostly unfamiliar names. And probably when they're done and they get to verse 18, they go, whew, that's done. Now on with the real story. And that's unfortunate, <laughs> because to the Jews, this is not surprising, and this is not boring at all. They are intensely fixed to every word of these genealogies, because it sets Jesus of Nazareth in the context of what God has been doing for thousands of years, what He's been doing for His people, as far back as their forefather, the great father of them all, Abraham. And Matthew ushers in a theme with this genealogy. It's the theme that God's promises always come true. Do you believe that? The climax of God's work is right in front of our eyes in these names. Uh, all humankind 
uh, throughout the centuries is going to have revealed to them Jesus at the end of the genealogy. And genealogies are valuable because they show the purity of, of lineage. And that was so important for Jews. I don't know if it is for us today, but it definitely was for Jews. Even today, people are searching for their past, right? Their ancestry. You go to Ancestry.com and you pay the money and you, you have a link to your past. Woohoo! Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 tells us that there were returning exiles who came back from Babylon to Jerusalem and they were going to build it back up, start a new life, get back to the way things were. And it says they searched for their family records when they got back home, but they could not find them. And so many of them were excluded, it says, from serving in the priesthood. Do you know why? Because they were unclean. That's how important genealogies were for Jews. And these documents were kept in public records and, and overseen by the Sanhedrin, who we read about in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great, that, that king that um, tried to murder Jesus when he was a youngster, remember that guy? He was so embarrassed because he was a half Jew and half Edomite. He was so embarrassed that his name was not in the official register kept by the Sanhedrin. So what do you do when you have a lot of money and a lot of power? He destroyed it so that nobody could claim a more pure pedigree than his own. Far from seeing this as a bit of dull reading, of something pointless, the first readers of Matthew would have been fascinated that Jesus could actually trace his genealogy all the way back to the father of them all, Abraham. And, far, and so Matthew includes Jesus' genealogy because he wants the Jews to know, he wants you and I to know and to draw our attention to the, to the links, the links of Jesus that he had with both, as I read in that first verse, both to King David and to Father Abraham. It's so important because Jesus is the fulfillment of all human history and in particular God's promise to Abraham. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? That through your offspring, offspring all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then he promised David, the next one in the second part of the genealogy, King David, that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever. It would be no end to it. This genealogy, if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, and you can probably see most Bibles do this, it's in three sections, and that's how it's usually laid out. Matthew lays it out so carefully. He arranges it in three groups, and there are 14 names in each group. And it's designed to make three names stand out. Abraham, David, and then Jesus. And the whole thing is arranged with such care. It's pretty amazing because it was an age when few people could read. It was an age when even fewer people could afford to have a scroll or could even get access to a scroll and read this for themselves, and they couldn't read anyway. And so the names are arranged. This is pretty cool in, in, in the Greek. They're arranged in an acrostic on the name of David so that it was easy to memorize, D-A-V. Of course, it wasn't in Greek, D-A-V, but you know what I'm saying. And amazingly, here's the big thing. Ladies, there are a number of women who figure into this genealogy. Isn't that amazing? You, you don't look too amazed. This might not seem strange today. It might not. But it was startling for these Jewish readers as they went through this list. And all of a sudden, they come to a lady's name. It's like, what? 
Because in Greek and Roman and, and Jewish culture, a woman had no legal rights. Not like today. She could not inherit property. She couldn't give, couldn't give testimony in a court of law. She was completely under her husband's power. She was seen less as a person than as a thing. And you know what Jewish men did every day when they prayed? They thanked God each day that they had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a, a woman. Yeah, exactly. How nice. And yet when you read through this genealogy, four, four, not just one, four women pop out right away in Jesus' genealogy. And what women they were. Tamar, she was an adulteress. Just was. Rahab, she was a prostitute from a pagan city, Jericho. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she was the woman David seduced and through whom she, he had a child and that first child died and it was through Bathsheba that a subsequent son, Solomon, kept this royal line going and it's through that direction in the genealogy that Jesus' genealogy is traced. Next one, Ruth. She's not even a Jewish, Jewess, but she's a Moabitess. And Moabites and their descendants were not even allowed near the assembly of God's people. They weren't allowed near the tabernacle. Then when the temple was built, outcast, could never get inside. And these are the four women introduced into the genealogy to prepare us for the biggest climax of them all, Mary. Matthew could not have found a more amazing selection of women wherever he looked in the scrolls of his Old Testament, women who were in the direct line of Jesus of Nazareth. So why did he choose them in particular? It's clear that people were well aware that Jesus' uh, birth was very strange. There was something different about the birth of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, uh, the people said, is this not the carpenter? <laughs> like, who is this guy? He, he's the carpenter, remember? He's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Do you know why? Not because he was a carpenter. Did you notice who's missing from the list? His dad. They all knew he doesn't have a dad. He's an illegitimate boy. Who does he think he is talking to us? Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. It's, it's a symbolic representation of the history of Israel, but packed into it is this, this is little nugget that you can see Mary and her birth uh, and God's miraculous birth through Mary of Jesus Christ. Let's listen to these words and, and think. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Obviously, this is Israel. But she was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. This is Lucifer with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems and his tail he swept down a third of the stars of heaven, caused other angels to fall along with him and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So you can see as you go through Old Testament, New Testament, from earth's and even heaven's perspective, this is a really different birth than any other that has ever been or ever will be. The Jews actually put out the rumor that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier and Mary. It was circulating all around town. Not everyone thought he was simply the child of Joseph and Mary. So Matthew may be alluding to some of these malicious rumors when he lists this genealogy. And he points out that in Jesus' ancestry, there were actually many notorious women, part of his lineage. Sinners they may be, but God works through sinners. God rescues sinners. And then our awesome God uses sinners to serve him and to do his will. Sinners like you and me. Here at the very outset of the gospel, Matthew goes out of his way to show that the barriers between men and women are broken down. Women share in the official genealogy of the Messiah right alongside of the men. And the barriers between Jews and Gentiles are also broken down in this genealogy. Ruth, the hated Moabite, she plays her part in the coming of one who is not only the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the whole world. The walls are coming down. And the positioning of these visibly sinful women, there's no doubt here, like Bathsheba and Tamar, positioning that with Mary, the gentle mother of Jesus, shows that the barriers between supposedly good and bad people have been taken down. They come crashing down. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 and 20 to 24, and there is no distinction. Paul's saying, get off your high horse. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And the only chance you and I have is to be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. At the very beginning of the gospel, the Christmas story, the all-embracing love of God is what is emphasized through a genealogy. Nothing can stand in its path. No one does, is, is not without needing it. Everyone needs this. So maybe this genealogy is not so dry after all, and you and I, maybe we should read it more often. But in the next section right after this genealogy, and they're positioned just this way by Matthew. In verses 18 to 25, Matthew presents the birth of Jesus. This is where most Christmas messages begin, but it's a folly to do so, because having prepared us for what's coming through the genealogy, uh, for the appearance of the most important birth in human history, Matthew tells us in no uncertain terms who this baby is that he's been talking about in the genealogy. And he uses two unmistakable allusions from the Old Testament. The child is Emmanuel, and the child is Jesus. Emmanuel. What does it mean? We sang it. God with us. Yet, yeah, were you singing? No, Emmanuel, God with us. It's not a prayer. It's a statement. It's a fact. 
And it takes us back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah prophesies, Behold, the virgin sh shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The child of the olden day prophecies at the time of Jesus' birth over 700 years in the past, that child was to be a sign, and he's come at last. Emmanuel. He is no less than God with us. The Hebrews had this such an exalted conception of God. It really puts us to shame. We can learn a lot here. They would not even make um, any kind of image of God. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even paint a picture. And it was something that so amazed the Roman conquerors that the Romans dubbed the Jews atheists. <laughs> can you imagine? Atheists, because that they, were, they called them the people without gods. And against this kind of a cultural background, Matthew claims not that God has given us a form and God hasn't given us a representation of himself, but that he has come in person. God is with us. He's here. He's here right now to share in our situation, to walk with us for a purpose. But what a claim. And right at the outset of the gospel, it's so ultimate. It's so exclusive. It does not fit in what our world is saying today in this pluralistic society in which you and I live, that each of us is somehow getting through to God in our own way. And Matthew says, no. God has gotten through to us in His way. And this is the way, the only way. And Jesus is not just a mere teacher. He's no guru. He's no Muhammad. He's no Gandhi. He's God with us. This is the essential claim of the Christian faith that we witness to at Easter and Christmas and hopefully every other day of the year. This is the foundation of your faith if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And to not make this claim is to abandon your faith in its entirety. It all rests on this. Second name, Jesus. It's the second great name given to the child of promise. In the world, this word also has a meaning. It means Yahweh saves. That personal, amazing name of God, Yahweh. He saves. You could say God to the rescue, if you like. So let's be honest about this name, Jesus. It was a common name. There were a lot of little boys and a lot of men running around Israel with the name Jesus. It wasn't exclusive to him. It was common. It goes back to even the days where, where God would rescue his people over and over and over again. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. People would pray. Yahweh save us. And perhaps the most notable was the man called Joshua, which is the Hebrew form of Jesus. So why call him Jesus? Wasn't it obvious? Because he will save his people from their sins. And this too is another Old Testament allusion, just like Emmanuel. And it comes from places like Psalm 130, verse 8, where we are told, and he, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you find that interesting as you meditate and think about that, that concept of Jesus and what the psalmist has just said here? We have this promise 
in the Psalms that He, God, will redeem, buy back, provide a rescue from sin, from sin for you and I, from His people. And centuries later, Jesus comes to do it. But God said that He would do it. This is one of the many times that you'll find in Scripture where what is predicted by God in the Old Testament is directly applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Another classic example is in, is in Philippians where, where Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 and, and asserts that Jesus has the right to this kind of mastery, a mastery that God actually reserves just for Himself as God in places like uh, Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, God says, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. I've heard it asserted that Jesus is never called God directly in the New Testament writings. Really? He just was God with us. So here at the announcement of Jesus' birth, you and I are brought face to face with the central theme of the entire gospel. God, who has been at work on his people since the time of, of Abraham, has come among them in person. And he's come for the specific purpose of rescuing them from the mess that they have made for themselves. What mess have you gotten into this year? Forget about this year, yesterday. What mess have you made? Christianity is not just good advice for moral living. It is good news about God and about what God has done for you and me through Jesus Christ. We find ourselves on this Sunday before Christmas reflecting on Matthew's account of Christ's birth. Genealogies and then two names. He is no less than God with us, and He came to rescue you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to pray. We're going to have another opportunity to worship God with our voices as one, as we worship together. And then I'm going to come back up and close out the service. Heavenly Father, we bow before You, again, acknowledging your mastery, your holiness. And Lord, that you came to this planet to redeem us. We're so, so thankful. We're so uh, amazed. We stand amazed in your presence. And Lord, our voices now from hearts that are full of your word proclaim who you are, what you are. And Lord, we long for the day when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, the cross, you might, some of you may be saying, those weren't a lot of Christmas songs. Don't worry, we'll get to those Christmas Eve. But the cross is not just for Good Friday. The manger is not just for Christmas Eve. The resurrection is not just for Easter. This gospel that we just went over this morning, it's a living reality. It's our living hope. We just sang it. I'm so thankful every day for the Bible, the Word of God, um, but particularly this year. Have you 
found it uh, more intense this year than other years? Have you found God's Word more resounding this year than at any other time in your life? I pray that's true. Um, and this Christmas, as the pandemic lingers yet on some more, I have a renewed and profound appreciation for the gift of the Word of God. Uh, in Luke 24, this baby that we have just sung about and read about has grown and he's presented the good news. He's had um, this gospel message and himself rejected soundly by many, many people. He's been killed and he's risen again. And we have the story of two of his followers who are wondering what is going on with this good news message on the road to Emmaus. And on that seven-mile walk, Jesus suddenly appears and he explains to them what the Bible is really all about. It's about him. And in Luke 24, Luke records, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones. You ever feel foolish some days? Like you're just not getting it and you've forgotten your living hope where it rests? And he said to them, Oh, the foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's something I read just a few weeks ago. The Bible is not a history of how religion developed. It's not a compendium of sacred religious thought. It's not a book of moralistic insights to help us live our lives better. I know a lot of people are trying to do that today. An encyclopedia of theology for people who want to make sure they believe the right things. It's not a catalog of stories about noble people who made the right choices. It's not a rule book of how to be good enough for God to accept you and give you eternal life. You see, although, although this book does contain a lot of stories, like, like the one we just read on, on the road to Emmaus. The Bible is not a collection of religious, religious short stories. It's one story from cover to cover with God's explanatory notes included. And this story addresses my deepest questions. It addresses our most terrifying fears. It has a shocking beginning, a horrible dilemma, and this amazingly unexpected solution. And it's got a glorious ending that I'm really looking forward to. I did read the end of the book, sorry. Spoiler alert. It's the story of stories. And one narrative that every human being needs to hear, and needs to hear from you, and needs to hear from me. So they have the opportunity to receive it as their own. It can make you weep, and it can make you celebrate. The Bible is the story of Jesus Christ coming to earth to defeat sin and to defeat death, to restore a perfect, eternal relationship with the creatures he made in his own likeness in the very beginning. Now that's Christmas. So we're going to return on Christmas Eve to continue to worship together at 6 o'clock to worship our King and our Savior. You are dismissed. God bless.